Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the new podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. This is part three of a four-part talking transit series leading up to the transit referendum vote on May 1st. So far, we've heard from Councilman Jeremy Elrod and former mayoral candidate David Fox. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Hopkinshield. Aaron is the Director of Transportation and Sustainability in Nashville. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast and being my third guest on transit. Thank you for having me. Uh, A few rapid fire questions for you to get things started. Uh, What's the last book you read? Um, The last book I read was um, Thank You for Being Late by Thomas Friedman. He actually came to Nashville um, on Valentine's Day for he was doing his book tour in Tennessee. And um, I've read his books before and I've always found them really inspiring. But I'm a new parent. I have a two-year-old and he talked a lot about thinking about how to prepare your children for the future and a future with of technology, and and I found that really helpful and, and inspiring as a parent as well. And what's your favorite lunch spot downtown? I'd ha- I think it's Merchants on, on Broadway. Um, it's usually a little bit further of a walk from here, but it's all, on a nice day. It's a great way to sort of get out, and um, they've got a fun twist on sort of modern Southern, I think. And what's your first news site you check in the morning? Um, I'm probably supposed to say the Tennessean, but it's the New York Times. <laughs> Honest answer. The Tennessean is second. <laughs> <laughs> and what's your favorite Greenway? I would say right now it's the McCabe Greenway. Um, I do that with my daughter and my dog pretty often, but I am really holding out for the 440 Greenway. We we live in 12 South, and so the one that sort of picks up right at where um, Sevier Park is would be one that we could walk to from our house. So I'm excited for that one to open at some point in the future. That'd be great. And finally, how often do you ride the bus? Um, I ride the bus probably about about once a week, um, depending on on my schedule. I'm right on the 17, and so it's pretty convenient to get downtown. The only problem is that it only comes twice an hour, so it really has to sort of fit in with with my meeting schedule, um, which is why increases in the bus service and, and increasing frequencies will be an important first step of Let's Move Nashville. Definitely. Uh, so going into the transit plan, what is your favorite aspect of the plan? What are you most excited about? Um, I'm actually sort of, <laughs> I guess this is a little cliche to say, but I'm really super excited about it all. I'm really proud of it. And I think that it's going to be a great step forward for Nashville. Um, I'm, I'm just as excited about the bus improvements as I am about, about the light rail improvements. I think the light rail improvements are going to be transformational for us as a city and for us as a region. But I do have to say that I think the success, the successes we're seeing in our peer cities are really that you have to invest heavily in bus to complement your rail investments for them to be really successful. And so we really made sure that there was a, um, a backbone of high quality bus service um, to, to get us started. And where would you rank transit on a list of priority issues for Nashville? Obviously, transportation is your field, but there are a lot of issues in Nashville where would you rank it? <laughs> uh, you put the caveat in there. Um, obviously, it's it's what I'm spending, you know, a vast majority of my time on. So I would I would put it really high up there. But I think you know we're a really fast growing city, and so there's a lot of things that are are coming at us as a city, and we have to be ready to deal with more than one issue at a time. Um, I've heard people talk about sort of the previous mayors, and they always talked about their three top priorities. Um, and I think that that was maybe relevant in the past. And now with all the issues that are coming out with us, you've got to be focusing at, on five or six different different issues. So transportation, quality of life, affordable housing, education um, are all issues we've got to be working hard on. Did it surprise you that in the Vanderbilt poll done in February, 
improving public transportation system ranked sixth on the list of voters' priorities? Yeah, I think it did surprise me. You know, we we just recently completed our our resident survey, um, and and I know we're getting ready to release that. And transportation issues were one were one and two in in that list. So I think what we hear from constituents and what we're hearing from folks in the community is that it's a really important issue for them. Okay, and I know you mentioned that you're equally excited about the bus improvements compared to the light rail. Mm-hmm. Um, the light rail and the tunnel represent, I think, about 82% of the expenditures in the Let's Move Nashville plan. Um, do you think that's a proper weighting? Well, I, I do think the so the, the, the capital cost for the light rail is about 60% of, of the, the total revenue over the 15 or expenditures over the 15 years. The total cost of the rail corridor improvements is 81.5% of the uninflated total project costs, $5.35 billion. The 61% figure Aaron referred to is based on the $8.95 billion of revenue needed over 15 years, and the 61% figure does not include any of the debt service related to the light rail and tunnel projects. You know, again, there's no silver bullet solution to our transportation issues. And if if there's anybody out there that's saying that there is, then they don't totally understand the issue. And so I think we have to have a multimodal plan. I think the light rail is really crucial because what we're seeing across the country is that there's really high demand for transit-oriented, walkable communities. And we're seeing that here in Nashville with the tremendous amount of pressure on our urban core um, and, and people wanting to move back in the urban core so they can be close to the greenways and they can be close to the downtown. And so investing in light rail is going to be able to help us change sort of how we're growing. And to do that at this point in time with a million more people coming over the next 25 years. Um, we'll, we'll be able to quite literally put a stake in the ground about the type of city and community we want to be into the future. Um, and that's worthy of a big investment. So in terms of the bus improvements, you mentioned that the bus near your house runs every half an hour. Why are we going kind of all in on, on transit with an either 5.4 or a $9 billion plan, regardless of how you want to count that? But why are we going all in with this transit plan when we haven't maximized and optimized our bus system? Um, so let me address the 5.4 versus the, the $8.9 um, billion number. Um, so the $5.4 billion number is the capital cost of the system in 2017 dollars. And the way the IMPROVE Act was, was written, they asked us to put in the referendum language the, the upfront capital costs um, in today's dollars and then with the reoccurring, um, the reoccurring and annual operating costs. Mm-hmm. So that's how we originally had it put on. One of the other requirements of the Improve Act was that we put together a financing plan and have that reviewed by a third-party auditor and have that signed off by the state comptroller. Um, remember, we're the, we're the first city in the state that has ever done this before, so this was definitely sort of a learning process as we were going along. And that 8.9 number was always in our financing plan. Um, the council decided that they they thought it was important for the um, for the voters to understand both of those costs. But the eight point nine number is the the total revenues required to um, build the system, um, operate and maintain it, and all the interest and inflation um, sort of built into that number. To service the debt over that first fifteen years. Correct. Um, and an interesting note is that Seattle, which I know that the chamber and, and a lot of councilmen just went out and visited their transit plan, uh, Seattle did put that full in inflation-adjusted cost of their plan on the ballot. Correct. And 
theirs did pass too. So I mm-hmm. think there's hope here that having that number won't be enough to scare folks away. And the same year, the same year that Seattle passed their referendum, LA passed their referendum as well with the full in operations and maintenance cost. Um, Seattle's was 54 billion. Uh, Los Angeles was 121 billion. Um, I think Seattle's was over 15 years and, and LA's was over 40 years. So you're right. I think that we're, we're seeing obviously Seattle and, and LA are, are bigger cities than our, ours, although Seattle is about 3 million people, which is where we're going to get to in the next 25 years. And so voters know that these are important investments for the city, for cities and, and they're not, um, shying away from making those important investments. Absolutely. And what do you have to say to people who live in neighborhoods that won't benefit from the light rail portion of the plan? And some areas won't even gain uh, access to the bus system. Um, I I think of Green Hills, um, which has a huge traffic problem, and we don't have a light rail spoke going to them. And the light rail lines that we do have planned for don't go very far. So the the Charlotte one ends at White Bridge and the Gallatin uh, Road one ends at Briley Parkway. Mm-hmm. So kind of what do you say to people who don't live close to a light rail, even though light rail is going to be the, the biggest part of this plan? Well, so I think actually, um, if we could sort of take a step back and talk a little bit about how we got to where we are, because sure. I think that that's an important part of the conversation. So um, um, even under Mayor Dean, we started the Nashville Next process, which was, you know, we know Nashville's growing, and we went out to the community and we said, how do we want to grow over the next 20 to 25 years? Um, and overwhelmingly, Nashvilleians said, we want to start growing in our urban core and along our transit corridors so that we can preserve our neighborhoods and we can preserve our rural open space. Um, so, you know, under Mayor Dean, we obviously tried with the AMP process and um, that was unsuccessful. Um, the, the BRT line that would have gone from East Nashville down Broadway and then out West End. And one of the biggest criticisms and feedback we heard during that process was, this doesn't really make sense. It's just sort of one line. We want to see how it fits into a broader regional network. So then we launched the in-motion process, which really, um, and this is super important, we took the transportation needs that we, that we, um, were, we wanted to be considering over a 25-year period, and we overlaid it on top of the Nashville Next growth plan. So really trying to tie our transportation and our land use together. And, and as part of that end motion process, um, there were three scenarios that were created. There was sort of a business as usual. There was a, a all in on the bus. So BRT and, um, rapid bus and, um, increases in bus service. And then there was the light rail, commuter rail and, and bus plan. And what we heard from residents is that they really wanted to go for the big bold option. Um, you know, overwhelmingly that scenario three was chosen. But I think also that we, that we were sort of looking at our issues and our, and our transportation issues. Um, and again, this comes down to sort of land use planning 101. Um, the reason we're having a lot of our congestion problems is because we have grown in a really sort of sprawling way and we feed everybody onto these interstates and arterials to come into, into our downtown core. Um, and so we, we have to be thinking about how to be growing in a way where we can create more transit-oriented, walkable neighborhoods where you don't need a car for every trip. That is the best way to solve congestion, um, is that you don't have everybody getting on the interstates at the exact same time every morning. Um, and so, you know, I think that we, we've been listening to what our constituents have said. We've been working on this and having this conversation over the last five or six years. Um, and then we've, we know we've come to a table which we think will be important for the region and is a reflection of what we heard from the community. Sure. 
Going back to the in-motion plans, if you look at those, the, the lines that are in each of those options, they extended out to our surrounding counties, mm-hmm. and they really were truly regional plans. Mm-hmm. This plan, I think it would be a stretch to call a regional plan, just given where those light rail spokes end. So do you have any concerns about that, basically that the uh, community participants in in motion ask for a regional plan, and then the plan we're being presented with is basically just a Davidson County plan. Well, so the Improve Act requires that you are exactly right that that Let's Move Nashville has has sort of been right sized to Davidson County, but is based off of a regional and motion plan. Um, the Improve Act requires that we go county by county in terms of doing our referendums, um, and and we've heard from a lot of the regional mayors that if we're successful on May first, they will also start. Um, their process of doing their own referendums. But, you know, again, as we were looking to some of our peer and aspirational cities, there were sort of two ways you could do it. You could pick one, you could pick one corridor and do a longer route on that one corridor and, and try and make the, the, try and tell your sort of community members that that was just one plan and you had to vote for it because this was the start of the system and we would, we'd be coming back to you next. Mm-hmm. Or you could invest in an entire system at first, but do sort of the shorter, you know, phase one, and with hopes that 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 network will be successful, and there'll be opportunities to expand it in the future. And we we think that there are enough successful systems going on across the country that as soon as you have lines that intersect each other, the ridership projections start to go you know off the charts because so that network component of it is super important. Um, And so we decided to do sort of the phase one of you know as many routes as we could do Mm -hmm. to help create that network. Um, and then, and then there's a line that's near almost everybody in the county. So even if you aren't walking distance from it, you can drive to the park and ride, and you can access it. Um, and where did the idea for the downtown tunnel come from? I, I know during the transit rollout at the convention center, when Mayor Barry announced the tunnel, I think she expected a huge applause, and then there was kind of tepid, and she had to ask for people to clap. I think it just surprised people um, that the tunnel was not mentioned in the in motion plan in in 2016. Um, So how did the tunnel make it into the plan? So um, you are exactly right that when um, the end motion process was completed, there was a little bit of a gray box over downtown. And I think, um, you know, the end motion plan hadn't gone into deep engineering um, Mm -hmm. and sort of looking at how how to make that connection. They knew that there was lots of other issues that were involved downtown. And so MTA didn't feel like they could make that decision sort of in isolation. So when we started looking at the system, we knew we had to come up with a really high quality connection in downtown to really bring all of these routes together. Um, And there were a couple things that that we were noticing. First of all, the average speed of our MTA buses in downtown right now are like three to four miles per hour. And the delay that they're experiencing in downtown can be felt throughout the network. So you might be waiting for a bus on Hillsborough Pike and it's late because it got stuck in traffic in downtown. So it's affecting the service throughout the entire county. Um, the other thing is we know downtown is really booming right now. It's getting ready to double in size from a commercial real estate perspective. Um, and already there's a lot of buildings that are built up against, you know, up to the sidewalk. Um, and our lanes downtown are on average three lanes wide. So pretty narrow. Um, the most narrow I've seen <laughs> in any downtown that I've traveled to in the U.S. Um, and then we have a lot of special events downtown. Um, uh, we were actually having a lot of these conversations a couple of weeks after the Predators were in the Stanley Cup finals. And, and so we had seen sort of downtown just be inundated with activity and pedestrian activity. We also started looking really into the, the 
I think during the Nashville Next process, there were a couple comments that were that were in the Nashville Next that said that tunneling in limestone is is would be cost prohibitive, and so we wanted to have a better understanding of um, of what that meant. Um, but with the new technologies that are available to us, particularly the tunnel boring machines, um, it's actually more feasible than I than I think we anticipated. Tunneling is actually less expensive per mile than um, doing an elevated like monorail or like the elevated tracks that they have in Chicago, um, and is obviously much better for your streetscape if you if you don't you know if you if it's underground. Um, limestone is actually a pretty good material to do to use a tunnel boring machine for because it's self reinforcing, um, so you don't have to constantly be stopping the machine, reinforcing the tunnel, um, and then and then continuing to go. Um. In terms of the necessity for a downtown tunnel, you mentioned the obvious traffic congestion downtown that limits buses. Um, two ideas that I've heard tossed around, one by David Fox and then one by a council person. Uh, the first would be David Fox's suggestion that we should just move the bus station out of downtown. It doesn't belong in downtown. And I think that might be a factor of we have lower job concentration downtown than a lot of cities. And then also kind of all of our buses are feeding downtown in order to go somewhere. And then the other suggestion would be perhaps a transit mall along First Avenue. And so that would be your transit connector between north of Broadway and south of Broadway, rather than doing a tunnel below Fifth Avenue. What do you think of either of those suggestions? <laughs> um, I think moving the the core, uh, I mean, d- downtown is is definitely the core of our region. And, and we're seeing that businesses are increasingly relocating to downtown because it's the center of the, our economic region. Um, you know, we just saw Bridgestone and HCA um, build new headquarters downtown. And um, Assurian just announced that it's going to be consolidating, you know, four of its offices downtown. And the reason they're doing that is because they want to be in the center of, of, of our region so that they can be attracting talent from the north and attracting talent from the South. And that's the best place for them to do that. And it also makes them, it increases their productivity for whatever meetings they want to have during the day if everybody's within sort of a 10-minute um, a ten minute trip from, from where their offices are. So I think that, A, downtown is definitely the core of our region today, and it's only going to be more the, the center of our region as we move forward. Um, that's just how cities work and how sort of urban agglomerations work um, from a productivity standpoint. Um, this, the second option of having sort of an above ground option or a transit mall on first Avenue. Um, the other thing that we're seeing with the growth that's happening is the center of downtown is actually really shifting as sort of the capital view and the Gulch continues to grow and Sobro continues to grow. Um, first Avenue is not really the center of downtown anymore. Um, I mean, imagine if you were working at the new HCA building in capital view and the, the bus or the train let you off at first Avenue. It would be really hard to, um, you know, to get up to where you're going. So staying sort of in the Fifth Avenue area is really sort of where the center of town is. Um, we did look at an above ground option that would have that would have, you know, likely involved closing Fourth and Fifth Avenue to vehicle traffic and being just for transit vehicles. Um, but again, given the number of special activities um, and special events that we have downtown, um, you would have had to stop the trains a couple of blocks from sort of the center of downtown whenever those streets were closed. And that doesn't create sort of a fully functioning network. Okay. Last week, Mayor Bradley said, quote, unless we build out a transit system that supports the kind of city we're going to be in the future with a million new people, we will fail. Uh, So I looked into those stats and 
While the 10-county Cumberland region is projected to grow by a million residents by 2040, uh, Davidson County's population only accounts for about 15% of that, about 150,000 new residents by 2040. So considering that the proposed plan is not really a a regional plan and that 85% of the region's population growth will happen outside of Davidson County, how will this plan help us prepare for regional growth? Um. Again, this plan is based off of the end motion plan, which is a regional plan. Um, I think absolutely, we, we would love for this plan to go farther than, than it's going on this first phase. But we think that this is a really important investment that we're making as a city to, say, to see the type of future and the type of city that we want to be. Our hope is that it will be extended to the county line and that we'll be working in conjunction with our surrounding counties and our surrounding mayors um, to, for them to have dedicated funding referendums so that we can be connecting our routes to, to routes in, in their county. You know, Williamson and Rutherford County, as you said, based on these regional projections, are expected to double in size over the next um, 20 years. Thinking about how they want to be growing in the future, I think is an important conversation they need to be having as we're thinking about making these transit investments. And um, the other part of Motion is that in the Motion regional plan, the only rail that goes out of the county is the Music City Star mm-hmm. and the commuter rail to Clarksville. Um, but I think if we move forward with our light rail plan on um, Murfreesboro and Nolensville and Gallatin in particular, that as those counties are starting to think about how they want to grow and coming up with a smart growth plan along those corridors, then it would make sense to extend rail into their counties. Okay. Um, and, and, but those are conversations they need, to, they need to be having. But I have a feeling they're going to have them a lot faster if we're successful on May 1st. Sure. Basically, Davidson County sets the example. Does it concern you at all that voters in the surrounding counties are more conservative than in Davidson County, and therefore maybe um, one would think less likely to vote for raising their own taxes? I guess so. But, you know, Williamson County just approved a sales tax raise for schools, to, to, for schools mm-hmm. which um, transit transit referendums are actually successful 71% of the time. And, and my understanding is that school bonds are, are successful even less than that. Okay. So we have a, you know, we have a precedent that's been set that um, we as a region are willing to invest in infrastructure that's super important for our cities and our future. Um, and, I, and I don't think that traffic is a bipartisan issue. I would say that, um, you know, Mayor Barry and now Mayor Briley meets with the regional county mayors once a month. And I am always incredibly impressed by those conversations. I mean, those folks really love this region and they know that they um, have more things in common than they have differences and that they are largely in agreement about the direction we need to move forward. And, all, and, and everything that we've heard from them is that they're fully supportive of transit as a solution to our growth and congestion challenges, and that that's the direction they need to be moving in as well. Do you think Nashville will fail as a city if voters reject the transit plan on May 1st? Like if, if we wake up May 2nd and the transit referendum has failed, do you agree that we'll just sit back and say, well, Nashville is going to fail? I think that it that this is a really watershed moment for us as a city and a region. And what what we're seeing in cities across the country is that when you invest in transit, you can have growth without gridlock. And that is because you're investing in high capacity options. I mean, even Commissioner Schroer, the TDOT commissioner, he will tell you, A, our interstates are actually only at capacity 14% of the time. Um, and B, his right-of-way costs, his right-of-way acquisition costs are now more expensive per mile than his construction costs. Widening our roads and widening our freeways is not sort of the, the direction that we can go forward. Um, but even when you, when you have an entirely car-oriented transportation system, 
Um, it means that if everyone needs a car to get around, a million new people to your region likely mean a million more cars. And that is just a recipe for more congestion. And even more than that, it's an, it's an equity concern. Um, one third of Americans don't or can't drive. So again, if getting around by car is your only option, we're literally leaving thousands of people behind. And so I think that this is a really watershed moment to say, how do we want to grow and what kind of city do we want to be? And we know transit works in other places. Um, we know light rail in particularly work, works in other places. And light rail is an incredibly important um, sort of stake and value statement as a community to say, we want to start growing differently. We want to grow in a way that's more transit oriented and walkable. And, and without it, it's going to be harder for us to grow. I don't think people will stop coming, but I think it's going to start, the congestion is going to start eating into our quality of life and it's going to make it a much less livable city. As a quick note, if you're enjoying the Nashville Sounding Board, please leave a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app or your app of choice. You mentioned the right-of-way uh, acquisition costs. Um, will the light rail lines be built down the center of the roads like Galton Road and, and Charlotte Avenue? So the most important milestone that we have to get past is May 1st because it's dedicated funding. Um, where we are in the planning process is still very, very early stages, and there's so many more design and engineering decisions that have to come forward. So again, I mean, you know, to a lot of the people that are out there that think that you know once we're successful on May 1st and that we're never coming back to the community to ask about how this will be implemented, that is, def- is definitely not true. Um, if we look at examples from peer cities about what we would want to happen, um, yes, the alignment down the center, down the center of those corridors tends to be the best, um, from a transit and safety and sort of movement perspective. Um, we've had initial conversations with TDOT because all the corridors are state routes. They've said that they, they would like to see if there's two lanes on Gallatin right now in each direction, they would like to see those maintained mm-hmm. as, as we move forward. Um, you know, we have we have a sense of where of what we want it to look like right now, but a lot of things can change. There's a lot of flexibility that's that's baked in to this plan. The way the Improve Act was written is we are committed to making improvements on the corridors that we're talking about, but there's a lot of opportunity for community engagement and flexibility as we move forward. Okay, and that seems to have been a hotly debated issue, kind of the flexibility and how much we're voting for a dedicated funding stream and how much we're voting for this specific 55-page Let's Move Nashville plan. It, um, I think the way that it's, fra- it's framed in the Let's Move Nashville plan, I have a copy of it right here, is that um, the sort of design and engineering um, phase is what would kick off in 2018. Okay. Um, but we don't, we don't have the um, – we, we can't even apply for federal funding in, until we're at 30% design. Okay. And we're at maybe 5 to 10%. So um, we still have a couple of years of design and engineering, even on that first project. Yes, there is an intent to move forward with a rail plan that I think, you know, if this is successful on May 4, on May 1st, we will move forward with that intention because that's what the voters told us that they wanted. And like I said, the commitment to the corridors, you know, to the to the criticism that you are voting on this plan and there and, and, you know, we're never going to hear about it again. Imagine if we'd come na- come out and asked for $5.4 billion and had no plan. You know, what would people, we'd be asking people to essentially write us a blank, a blank check. And we think that voters are, are smart enough and engaged enough and interested enough to say, you know, we've done a lot of work as part of Nashville Next and NN Motion. Um, and here's the plan that we as a community think we want to move forward with. Um, and, and we need the dedicated funding to take the next step. The, the other thing that I want that I want to comment on in this same vein is 
There's a lot, there's been a lot of comments that I've heard that light rail is 19th century technology. And I think that's really silly. And um, it's, it would be like saying that the Model T and the Tesla Model S are the same technology. Nobody would say, would say that that's true. The light rail trains, my, I have a toddler who watches Thomas the Train. <laughs> hmm. This is not going to be Thomas the Train. Um, these are really going to be state-of-the-art light rail systems. Um, but when we talk about our most congested corridors, it's a geometry problem. It's not a technology problem. And, and light rail car trains can move, a four-car light rail tr- car train can move 16,000 people per hour in each direction. A vehicle lane can only move about 1,600. So it's a 10 times increase in capacity on those, on those corridors. And as we're continuing to grow, we need to be able to move more people in the same amount of space. Okay. You mentioned before transit-oriented communities. And during my research, I found an interesting write-up of the Urban Land uh, Institute event in Nashville last summer. And at the event discussing transit-oriented development, uh, the president and founder of City Ventures Associates in Denver said, the value comes from the places you're making, not the transit. And similarly, Burt Matthews, president of the Matthews Company, a Nashville-based commercial real estate firm, said the real estate and development communities are a critical component in the transportation plan success. And so in the last few weeks, I've seen the kind of pro-transit plan messaging uh, pivot a little bit towards more of an economic development focus, just like I think we've seen a messaging pivot towards dedicated funding and away from perhaps the particulars, the light rail, the tunnel components. Um, Most people that I know think about public transit as a way to move people around. Mm -hmm. Is economic development an equal goal of the plan? Is that the priority? How do you see those things relating to each other? So I actually wouldn't call it an economic development. I mean, I, I, I don't think you do transit-oriented development as a way to do economic development. We are a booming city right now. Right. We don't totally need to be encouraging more growth or more development. Mm-hmm. It's actually about where people grow. And and you, you can talk to sort of economists and, and land use experts um, transit-oriented development doesn't actually create new development. It just relocates it. Transit-oriented development costs the city less from an infrastructure perspective, being able to repave sidewalks, repave road, provide utilities to those, to those communities. It's cheaper for us to do that in, in denser areas than it is to do it in sprawling areas. Um, I, I think Burt Matthews is right in terms of saying it's the quality of the place. People want to be in walkable transit-oriented communities. It's the reason we're seeing such high high housing costs across the country is because we have been building suburban car-oriented communities for 50 years, and there is a lack of supply of these urban core walkable transit-oriented neighborhoods. Um, so I, I think saying that it's an economic development strategy is, is, is missing the point a little bit. Sure. Okay. And considering that tax increment financing is generally used for economically blighted areas, Shouldn't transit TIF be used for areas that are transit blighted? Um, and so why in this case will our transit TIF funds be going to the kind of five light rail spokes where we are already concentrating investments in transit rather than diverting them to areas that are kind of transit blighted? Well, I think the way that it's written is that um, you you do the transit-oriented development districts on corridors that have previously been transit blighted, but you are making an investment to improve the transportation infrastructure 
So then you want the land use and the density um, and the design of the of that development around that transit corridor to be matched. And so that's the point of them. And I think all all nine of the corridors that we that we're talking about currently qualify as being transit blighted areas. Um, but as we as you know, for successful on May first, and we move forward with these plans, they will have high quality transit infrastructure being planned for them. So we can start to design those communities around the corridors um, in a way that is um, really matching your land use to your transit investments. Quick note, the new and first ever transit-oriented development district created by MDHA is along Lebanon Pike in Donaldson. MDHA has declared the area transit deficient, even though the Music City Star services the Donaldson station located within the roughly half mile by one mile district. So if we take for an assumption that people want to live and work close to light rail and close to transit options, which I think is a safe assumption, and it's backed up by the fact that transit-oriented developments can generate 25 to 50% premiums for lease rates, um, and also keep in mind that transit-oriented developers won't need to build as many parking spaces, um, so that kind of cuts down on their, on their costs and adds to, to profit margin. So if those areas are already extremely enticing to developers, why do we need to further incentivize development with tax increment financing? So I think that, it, it again, it comes back to the density, the density question. So I think that there's, and actually the affordable housing question. So, um, so I'll talk about both. So um, from a density perspective, um, oftentimes communities are really reticent to having new density come into their corridor or come into their neighborhoods or come into their corridors because they assume the density means gridlock. Uh, again, if your only option to get around is via car, then that does tend to happen. But if you can be creating these communities where you can walk and bike and take the train, you don't have to be getting in your car. And so you can have that increased density in a way that doesn't mean increased gridlock. Um, and so again, I think that those are those incentives are important so that we can be encouraging that level of density along those corridors in places where we know that d- that density isn't going to automatically equal increased gridlock. Um, and then the other piece of it is the affordable housing piece. Again, the long-term solution to this is um, building more transit-oriented walkable neighborhoods so that we're increasing the supply and so the high demand for those areas starts to come down. Sure. And um, a lot of people have asked kind of why bus rapid transit, which is generally cheaper than light rail, isn't a part of this plan, even though it was a big part of the in motion plan. Mm-hmm. And is that really just because it's bus rapid transit is less permanent and therefore less of an impetus for transit oriented development? So I act, my, most of my transportation background is actually in bus rapid transit systems. So I worked on bus rapid transit systems in China um, and in, and, and um, I never lived in Latin America, but the organization I was working for was encouraging and supporting bus rapid transit systems in Latin America as well. Um, and those are in- incredibly powerful projects and investments, and, and they're revolutionary from the transit world because you can provide high-quality service at a lower per-mile cost. But I think in the U.S. context, we're not seeing a lot of super successful BRT projects because they tend to be, as they go through the design process, they, um, they tend to be degraded um, and, and compromised. So you see some of the dedicated lanes sort of taken out. You see and we some end of up the with off- rapid bus. Um, or even worse than rapid bus in a lot of um, situations. And I think we saw that during the AMP process. You know, it started off as a BRT plan, and where they ended up, even even before it ended up getting killed in the state legislature, it was not a bus rapid transit project. 
So again, I think the light rail investment is super important for a couple of reasons. It's what we heard from Motion. Light rail ridership is actually going up, even as we're seeing small dips in bus ridership across the country. So it really does attract riders. We are definitely a car-oriented, car-commuting city right now. And so investing in high-quality options that will be attractive to more riders, I think, is an important thing for us to do to start to build that transit ridership culture. And then we've had, long, we've had lots of conversations about transit-oriented development. And we've seen across the country that um, light rail investments are, are really important for sort of changing those develop, land use um, development patterns. So um, bus rapid transit are fantastic, but they just aren't quite as successful in the U.S. market because, you, you, because of that land use and transportation sort of chicken and the egg problem. That's fair. And so now I'd like to give you a chance, kind of closing argument, give us your best pitch for the transit plan. I know a lot of people are going to vote on May 1st and haven't made up their mind yet. I mean, I think my my closing argument is that um, this is a really important moment for us as a city, and and we're going to talk about whether we want to invest in ourselves and invest in our future. It is a big investment, but we also, I think, have set it up in a way that the average cost to the average sales taxpayer will be um, will be manageable. We're talking about seventeen cents a day the first five years, thirty five cents a day after that, and this is an investment in the type of future that we want to be. It is based off of, it's well-researched, it's based off of years of community engagement. It's based off of the best practices that we're seeing across the country. Transit is the future of cities. It really sort of comes down to that. And the reason that it's the future for cities is because it's the, it's the most efficient way to move people um, in, in congested urban areas. And, and if we want to continue growing and continue thriving and continue being the it city, we have to make this investment right now. Well, thanks so much, Aaron. Thanks for coming on and talking to me. And thanks for everyone for listening. Thank you so much for having me. If you've been enjoying the Nashville Sounding Board, I strongly encourage you to check out another Nashville podcast called Education Conversations. It's hosted by Linda Donovan, and listening to Education Conversations has really helped me keep up with the state of our schools and education policy in Nashville.